You know, the purpose of Mark's gospel was made very clear. Even, even in the very first, I went back to the first verse of Mark's gospel. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he makes it very clear that the whole purpose was to give us the good news of Jesus, the truth about Jesus, and to, you know, Mark's gospel is sometimes referred to as the motion picture gospel. I like that. You know, it's like watching a motion picture like unlike anyone you've ever watched. Here's what Jesus did, and here's what it means for us. Look at what he did next, and look at what he did after that. It just moves from one scene to the other, and each scene ex- inspires us, excites us, and gives us a picture of what it means to be a servant of the Lord Jesus. We know that Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel. And it's just, it's just different in a way and, and very inspiring as to how Mark tells us about all the things that Jesus did for us. I'd like to begin, if I could, with this opening statement and ask you to ponder these questions with me. If I do not identify as a servant of Jesus Christ, then who am I? If I'm not living out the purpose and work of a servant, then what am I? Think about those for a moment. And so today we're going to look at the faith of the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, what that faith looks like, particularly a little bit about what a servant is not. Sometimes the best way to discover what I should be, what I should do, is to think about the things that I should not be that I should not do, and what that means for life. And we're going to kind of look at it that way. I think it would be important to kind of set a little bit of of context. First, we're going to read our scripture and then talk a little bit about the context here. In Mark chapter, chapter 9, verse 30. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles there, it's not on the screen. So, um, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Reading from God's Word today. From there they went on, and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Verse 32, But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came back to Capernaum, And when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? He knew, right? Already knew. But he asked him, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Wasn't the first time they had had this conversation. Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be what? last of all, and servant of all. And so taking a child, he sat before them, and, he, and taking him in his arms, the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Here's a little bit of a context as to what maybe was going on and what was in the hearts and minds of Jesus' disciples and what it was in his heart to tell him that day. 
You know, even though, even though they had been chosen and called to be fishers of men, they still struggled to fully understand yet the purpose that God had for them, that the Lord Jesus, the commission he was giving to them. They had seen Jesus do great miracles. They had seen him still the sea. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him feed, according to Mark's gospel, the 5,000. They had seen him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration before them. They had heard him proclaim all things are possible to those who believe. And even after revealing his death and resurrection, just like we just read about, they still struggled to understand the full meaning of that. They still kind of held on to, if you would, their political view of the Messiah, their religious traditions that, that, that had a way of taking them away from the true purpose that Jesus came to fulfill. Because they envisioned, we know, a political Messiah whose purpose would be to overthrow the rule of the Romans and set himself in authority. And so they, that kind of prompted their discussion, when our Messiah does that, then which of us will sit at his right hand and left hand? Which of us will be the most important ones to rule with them? Which of us should, will be the greatest? And so, well, that may be kind of hard to understand for you and I today because we have God's complete word, right? The Bible tells us who Jesus is, what he came to do. We have the gospel. But I think we would probably have to admit, at least I do in my heart, there are still things, knowing what I already know about Jesus, there are still things I struggle with to try to understand more. I still struggle with my doubts sometimes, understanding what's going on in life and why things aren't happening the way I think they should and what God is up to. I see some nods around our audience today. Yeah, redo that. Do you still struggle with your pride sometimes? And my pride gets in the way and it's almost like I'm, I'm telling God how to do his job or it's almost like I'm, I feel like I need to do God's job for him. And that, that's, that's his place, not mine. And as we're going to see today, sometimes we struggle with maybe growing up a little too much in the wrong way and leaving behind that very simple, childlike, unassuming faith that a servant of God needs to have all the time. And that should never, ever leave us. So we're going to look today at the faith of a servant from Mark 9. The faith of a servant that is unafraid, unselfish, and unassuming. The first one takes us back to verses 33 and 34. Where it tells us there that uh, as they were going on to Capernaum, he began to question them what we're discussing on the way. And we know what it was that they were discussing who would be the greatest. But it tells us that they were afraid to ask him. And so they kept silent. Now we know in the scripture that we just read that Jesus, it says that Jesus did not want them to know, want other people, uh, crowds of people to know yet where they were going. And it was a time in his ministry where he wasn't ready yet to just proclaim it publicly everywhere. He was taking the time to do what? 
to teach this group of 12 men. It tells us that he was tell, teaching and telling them. Jesus did a lot of teaching and telling because he needed to bring along these disciples to a deeper and better understanding of who he was and what he came to do. And I'm sure glad that he did a lot of teaching and telling because I need a lot of teaching and telling in my life to have a deeper knowledge, a more of a life-changing knowledge and experience of who Jesus really is. But in the original language, that part of the, of the story is translated as they held their silence. It even means that they were ashamed. Now it might have been just because Jesus wasn't ready to reveal everything publicly and they knew that, they respected that. But we're, all, but we're also here kind of, you know, it's kind of evident about a couple of other things. That they were afraid to ask him, but Jesus was glad to tell them. How many times in, in, in our life, I, I think of my own walk with the Lord, that there are some times that, that I, I feel some doubt, I know some things and some thoughts in my heart and my mind are really not of God, and strangely enough, I'm afraid to tell Him. Strangely enough, I'm a little bit ashamed of what I'm thinking when the flesh kind of rises up and I'm not really concentrating and focusing on the Lord like I should. I can feel, I can hold my silence and I can feel even a little bit of a shame and not want to tell him. Well, I appreciate what Pastor Luke said last week as he was talking about faith and reason. Luke, he said that doubt is a part of discipleship. And so when we doubt, we should do it in community with other Christians. That doubt can be a good thing. If it's the kind of doubt that cripples me, if it's the kind of doubt that, that leaves me stuck in my questions and, and, and my problems, then, then that's not a very healthy doubt. But if it's the kind of doubt where I am seeking after the face of God over and over again, I want to know the deeper things of the Lord God. I want to know in a deeper way who Jesus is and what he came to do and most importantly what he's doing in and through my life. And when I look at scripture, there are examples over and over again of the people of God bringing their doubts to the Lord God. And when they do, God not only listens, but God gives them some life-changing answers. It's all throughout the Word of God. Aren't you glad there are, are people who are not the, the prominent religious leaders of the day, but people who are really simple followers of the Lord Jesus, like his disciples and like others that are mentioned in Scripture? You know, go all the way back to Moses. Moses had some issues, didn't he? Moses had some doubts. And we find over in Exodus where, Exodus 32, where Moses comes to God and he's saying, God, you, you called me to lead these people out of slavery. But God, you haven't told me who's going to do this with me. He told God that he was slow to speak, that, that he needed someone to speak for him and all of that. And, and he was telling God, God, I just need to feel, as he gave his doubts to God in that conversation, he simply said, God, I need to know your presence. And God simply said to him, Moses, my presence will go with you. 
And at that point in the conversation, it moved from doubt to certainty. Because when Moses realized and heard the voice of God, my presence will go with you. And whatever comes against you, whatever you go through, my presence is going to be with you. We find Moses forgetting about the question and the doubt and boldly asking the Lord God, Lord, let me see your glory. I just, I just need to see your glory. And what did, God, what did God do? God didn't say, no, you don't need to see that. Just believe me, you know, get rid of your doubt and all that. What did God do? He said, okay. You're going to see my glory. And that's the part where he hit him in the cleft of the rock. And the glory of the Lord passed by. And Moses got a life-changing glimpse of God's glory. I want to give you an example real quick from the book of Jeremiah. Here's a great uh, example for, our, for our, our young people from the, from the life and the call of Jeremiah. It's really in the very first chapter of Jeremiah. I should have marked it better. But it really brings us back to the importance of giving our doubts to the Lord God. Jeremiah comes before the Lord. His doubt is about his youth. And Lord, I'm so young. Will people listen to me? Can I do what you called me to do? And God reminds him, before before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You were born. I consecrated you. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Don't be worried about your youth because I have appointed you. I have called you. Do not say I am a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you should be, you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I am, I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So here Jeremiah brought his doubt before the Lord. Sharing with God, I'm so young, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if I can speak, I don't know if people will listen, I don't know if they will come against me, and what did God tell him? Again, my presence is with you, wherever you go, I'm with you, whatever you speak, I am speaking through you, do not be afraid of what I have called you to do. You know, I think of the Apostle Paul, it's just another couple examples in Romans, where uh, the Apostle Paul is, is having one of those conversations with the Lord God. God, I know what is the right thing to do, but yet I don't always do it. I find myself caught in doing things I know that are not a part of your will. And he even cries out to God and says, Who will save me from this body of death? But in the very next birth, verse as, as, as God began to speak to him he said but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord there's something again about bringing our doubts to God that he gives us amazing answers patient answers but answers that change our life forever one more example I'm a little partial to Thomas I guess because he is a Thomas <laughs> and you remember in John the story of uh, in fact, we can kind of turn there. Well, I'll, I'll just share it with you. In the, in after the resurrection of Jesus, and he appeared to them, he came right into their presence, through the walls, through the door, and there he was, the risen Lord standing among them. And they, they were proclaiming his resurrection, his new life. But Thomas had some doubt. 
attendees, sometimes called the Doubting Thomas. <laughs> unless I see the nail prints in his hand, unless I touch those nail prints, I, until I do that, I will not believe. That's being pretty open with your doubt, right? In the midst of seeing the risen Lord, uh, and, and he hearing that the disciples had seen the risen Lord, and, and in, 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 the, in the middle of all of that, he still was struggling with these doubts. And then we're told that the Lord appeared to them, and this time Thomas was with them, and saw the risen Lord. And what did Jesus do when he said Thomas, when he saw Thomas? He didn't chide him. He didn't say, Thomas, you know, why do you have all these doubts? What's your problem? What did Jesus do? Thomas, here's my hands. It's interesting that the scripture tells us that Thomas didn't have to touch his hands at that moment. But in that moment, realizing that Jesus had in fact risen again from the dead, and, and it was true just as he said he would, Thomas proclaimed, my Lord and my God. The point is, it was a life-changing moment for Thomas. It began with doubts. It began with questions that were honestly and humbly brought before the Lord Jesus. And he experienced a life-changing moment. I think that's also true of us. Let us rebring our doubts, our questions, honestly and humbly before the Lord God. His response is going to be, I'm so glad you asked that question. I've been wanting for a long time to, to tell you how to deal with these doubts. And he gives us truth and speaks truth into us that changes our life forever. I remember in the first church I pastored, as a young pastor, there was a one of our ladies who were in the hospital going through lots and lots of health problems. I went to visit her one day in the hospital and she uh, looked up at me and she said, Pastor, I'm ashamed to say this, but I have to tell somebody. I'm really mad at God. And I don't understand what I'm going through. I don't understand why he, he hasn't healed me yet and why I'm here in the hospital, why I'm dealing with all this sickness and... and uh, she went on and on about those doubts and those questions and even that anger toward God. And so I didn't really know what else to say to her, but I, I found myself saying to her then, why don't you just tell him? And I remember the surprise on her face. Oh, tell him? I can't, I can't tell God that? I can't tell God that I'm, that I'm angry with him, that I'm doubting what he's doing? And I remember looking at her and saying, do you not realize that he already knows? Well, yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> and so I encouraged her just to pour it out to God. I said, when, before you go to sleep tonight, you're all by yourself in this bed. Just pour your doubts and your questions out to God. And so I came back the next day, and there was a whole different countenance, a whole different look on her face, gleaming with joy. And I said, well, what happened? She said, you know, last night I was in, in my, here in my bed all alone and I decided I would do what you mentioned. And I got up the courage, looked up at the ceiling, and I said, God, I'm really angry with you. And God, I don't understand what I'm going through. I need some answers. 
And she began to pour her, out, her heart out to God. And then she said, I stopped and I waited because I knew that lightning would come through the window and strike me dead on my bed. So I waited and it didn't happen. And I told God some more my doubts and my questions. And before I knew it, I was talking to God in a way I hadn't talked to him in a long time. And I was looking up and I was worshiping God. And God was giving me answers that I never knew before. And it was a life-changing moment for me. I think that that is what you and I are called to do, don't you? I love this verse. There's a very popular verse, again, from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It's on all kinds of plaques and posters. You remember what the verse is? Thus saith the Lord, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a what? A future and a hope. You probably heard that verse or seen that verse. But you know how many times in the Word of God is it interesting what follows? That verse that we sometimes just take all by itself and apply it in a lot of ways. But here's the verses that follow Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you and for you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. You know, that, that, that's just a, a, a life-changing, revealing verse, isn't it? That God is reminding us that when you seek me with all of your heart, you will what? You will find me. Why? Because I have been waiting to be found by you. You know, it's so comforting for me to remember that when I bring my doubts and questions and honestly and humbly before the Lord, not only will I find Him, but think of this, He's already waiting for me to find Him. It's like the little saying, whenever you feel far away from God, think who's moved. Whenever I go searching for God, guess what? He's already waiting to meet me and speak to me and give me the answers that I'm looking for. And so the child of God, the faithful servant of the Lord Jesus, is someone who is unafraid to bring the doubts and bring the questions before the Lord. Secondly, the faithful servant is someone who is unselfish. In a world that causes us to be first, the Lord Jesus tells us and told his disciples that you need to be last and the servant of all. That the real meaning of success, the real meaning of, of fulfillment in, in, my, in my Christian life is to be last, to be a servant of all. To not look out for number one, but even to consider the needs of others as more important than my own. It's interesting that in almost all of the Apostle Paul's letters, the very first thing he does is to identify himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one of the most educated and powerful men in the world at that time. But he was a humble servant before God. God... God knocked him down. God humbled him. And that was all he could think about who he was from that point. That he was simply a faithful servant 
of the Lord God. Of course, our greatest example is the Lord Jesus, right? Who came not to serve, but to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. The model that we see, the picture that we see in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is in every way the life of a servant. I like what John Piper says. Jesus does not cease to be the Lion of Judah when he becomes the lamb-like servant of the church. So throughout scripture, the truth that we see, the picture that we see of what it means to be a true disciple is always that of servanthood. We are called to be bondservants of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You have been bought with a great price, therefore glorify God in your body. Jesus said it this way, He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so that's why Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all, and he must be the servant of all. Maybe a way to, to, to learn more about what it means to be a servant, I think is to kind of get real about the world that we live in these days. We live in a very trying and troubling time, don't we? Someone has said that the only sin left in our society today is the sin of intolerance. That if you believe that something should not be done, if you believe that, dare to believe that something is wrong, then that's a sin for you, that's wrong for you because it's, it's offending to so many people. We live in a world today that where truth offends like never before, but the truth is still the truth. And I think it's harder than ever before in many ways for the servant of God to stand up for what is true. And we live in very prophetic times. For example, what's happening in Israel on this scale as we speak is nothing short of prophetic. And we need to be watching, we need to be ready, we need to be looking at what is God up to right now prophetically and how is this speaking to us about what is to come and, and this, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the end, the end of this time on this earth. We're being given, I think, some signs today that are brand new, powerful signs. And we should be, you know, if we hear the news and all the bad news, we should be thinking about what is God up to and what does it tell us about the signs of our time. The world today does not need a weary church that's tired of standing against evil and darkness and just kind of builds a wall around itself and it's us and them and we want to keep them out. We just want to have our own little community together. The world does not need a, a weary church. God has called us to be the church in the world. God has called us to invade, invade darkness with light. That's what our purpose is as servants of God. And the world does not need a woke church. Let's just accept it. Let's just not make any waves. Let's just go along with what's happened. We're loving people. God loves everyone. You know, we don't, certainly don't want to offend anyone. 
So a lot of churches go in that wrong direction today. We don't need a weary church. We don't need a, a, a woke church. We need a church that is anointed, empowered, who's not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and who knows what it really means to be a servant in the world every day. We know as servants of God, who's first? God is first. Who's last? We're last. What is the most important thing? It is not us, but his kingdom. And our greatest purpose is to serve the world and to love the lost world in a way that only God can love them through us. That, if anything else, is the most lacking thing today in our world. You know, we, we, we talk about the importance of being disciples of the Lord Jesus. And the Great Commission tells us, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples of all the nations. I think if there's one main quality that stands out for a true disciple of the Lord Jesus, it has to be servanthood. Because when I understand what it truly means to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will do the things that a disciple is called to do. You know, we could even think of it this way, because he's first and I'm last, I need to talk to him. That's what we call prayer. Because he's first and because I'm last, I need to learn everything I can from him and we find it in the word of God that he's already given us. Because he's first and I'm last, I want to give of my life of my time, of my talents, of my tithe. I can't give enough because I know as a servant, a servant is someone who is called to give. A servant is someone who's called to invest in the world, invest in my family, and share with whoever I can the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ to be that light that shines in darkness. If there's anything the world is lacking today... It is the church of God and the people of God to be true servants. We don't hear anything about servanthood and what's taking place in our world. But we know that the answer and the hope lies in servanthood. Well, the last thing is that the faith of a servant is not only unafraid and selfish, but it is also unassuming. I think it's so interesting that in that same conversation, Jesus, it tells us, took a child took a child to teach them something so important. Why? Let me ask you the question. Why, why, why would he do that? What is it about a child that is pure and pow a powerful picture of faith? You know, I love what children can so very often teach us about the deeper things of God. I'll just share a real quick example. Uh, as a hospice chaplain, I sometimes do uh, funerals of families who have lost loved ones. Recently, I did a, a little bit different, unusual funeral of a family who had absolutely no belief in God whatsoever. No spiritual foundation whatsoever. And God reminded me of the verse in First Thessalonians that talks about those who grieve. Do not grieve as those who have no hope. And I sat there before the funeral service started, and, and in my spirit, I just said, these are people grieving who have no hope. 
And the grief would just come in waves through the audience. They would be kind of silent, you know, quiet for a while. And then just a wave of grief would wash over the whole entire audience. People crying and wailing and running to each other. And then it would be quiet for a while. And then again, another wave would just come over. Desperation, hopelessness, grieving as those who have no hope. And I was trying to think, what, what am I going to say to them? I mean, Luke can identify with this. What do I say in this service to this group of people? There doesn't seem to be anything present about God here today. The answer came in a little five-year-old girl who had drawn two pictures of her family and her perception of what was happening that day. The one picture had all of the family members in one huge bed all together. And all the pets who had died were above that. And, but all the family was together and there was a, a kind of a beautiful ocean of blue underneath the bed. And so in the service, I, I talked to the little girl about her picture because I wanted you know, to get her feelings as well and help, help her work through that. But I took her picture I said, this little girl can teach us something so important about grief today. I talked about all the family being together. Talked about there's nothing dark, there's nothing depressing in this picture. It's all bright colors. This picture is a picture of a family sticking together because they were just divided in so many ways. Here's a picture of family sticking together no matter what. This picture speaks of hope. And here is how you have true hope. And so, through a little girl, I knew exactly what to say. Well, again, we need to to keep this unassuming, childlike faith. Never let it fade. Never think that we've grown up spiritually where we don't think with a childlike faith anymore. Never lose that. Let me give one more quick example. For those of us who came to know Christ as a Savior at a young age, I think there was a lot of very childlike faith going on in that decision, right? But even if we came to know Christ at a, at a later age, there was still some very childlike thinking and trusting going on. My example was this, that that at the time I came to know Christ at the age of eight years old, my family was in shambles on the edge of divorce, and I, I just had no idea what was going to happen. It was just tension and, and all that for me as a young child. And then my mom came to know Christ as her Savior. Very soon after that, the men gathered at the church and prayed for my dad, and it wasn't long before he became a Christian. And I saw before my eyes my world changed. My family changed. My mother and father changed. And I remember saying, even as an eight-year-old boy, if God can do that, I want God in my life. And so an anchor came about in my life in that childlike thinking and trusting. And the anchor was this. There is nothing that God cannot do. And I'm glad that throughout my life, when I have a doubt, when I have a struggle, that anchor in my childhood thinking and trusting comes back again. And God reminds me, 
There's nothing that I cannot do. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know the whole picture. You just have to know who I am and that I am the God who can do anything, that with me everything is possible. So we need to keep as a faithful servant of God that childlike faith. I'd like to close today with this simple prayer of David in Psalm 143. He says, let me experience your faithful love in the morning, for I trust in you. Reveal to me the way I should go, because I seek after you. Rescue me from my enemies. Lord, I come to you for protection. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me on level ground, for I am your servant.